Hey, Jordan, how's it going? What's up? Hey, it's going well. Good. It's going well, Rob. What's up? Not much. Um, <laughs> after we spoke on Monday, we did a great uh, uh, bonus episode for the paid interns on Monday. And like almost immediately afterwards, I had a pretty pleasant evening afterwards. Uh, I worked a little bit on editing the podcast. I watched Dune again for the second time, which I enjoyed a lot. I think I enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first time. And then shortly afterwards, got about as sick as I have gotten in my entire fucking life. Um, was one of the worst nights of my life, hands down. Was extremely Holy sick. Um, it was really not good. But fortunately, because I have a commitment to this community and to you and to the podcast and the show, <laughs> I very bravely tried to gather myself today to recover. And here I am. I'm back. I'm back doing this, just doing yeah. the show again. This is like the Jordan flu game of, yeah, of podcasting. Exactly. I've done a couple of those. Wow. Yeah. This Jordan only did one. You know, I've, there's a couple of times that I've <laughs> been right. very ill, you know, and I've still showed That's up. Right. Uh, yeah, it was miserable. I imagine, but I imagine your life is pure hell right now as well as you're preparing for the big move uh, coming up. <laughs> Sick in yeah, a different just, way, I guess. It's terrible. It's so terrible. Yep. It's like packing and when you're limited on boxes, it's like a torturous game of Tetris. Because yeah. you're trying to make everything fit and maximize every possible inch in these cardboard boxes. And then you're making tough decisions, getting rid of stuff, which many, many things have sentimental value. And then you're just, you know, it's a lose-lose. Yeah. But the end result will be good. It'll be in a new spot. It'll be nice. And again, as we've reiterated a few different times on this show, all of the paid interns, the subscribers, yes. as part of their subscription contract, mm-hmm. are required to help me. That's move. mandatory. So I really appreciate the, yeah. the caravan of, of listeners we're going to have bringing yeah. boxes across Fantastic. the Fantastic. Couldn't Jordan couldn't do it without <laughs> you. And listen, like I know I'm feeling uh, physically pretty bad. You're feeling bad. But there's one thing that I think is improving my spirits, and I know it's going to improve your spirits as well, which is that... Oh, here we go. We got him. We got, <laughs> we got him again. Oh, goodness. Yeah. He's toast. The orange man. He's, he's yeah. done. He's, he, is, he is done for. Um, no, we're talking about, like, I think this is, like, of the various Trump indictments that have come down over the last couple of months, this is, I think, one of the most major ones where they're finally um, going after him for his role in the January 6th uh, pseudo-failed uh, insurrection, um, which a number of people, I think, have tried to play off as, like, not really a big deal or not serious, but I think it was pretty serious. It was funny. Um, definitely. It was definitely comically failed, but uh, you know, I think it was a pretty serious thing. So I think it's probably good that some effort is being made to hold Trump accountable for this. Um, I think the funny thing for me about it is that, you know, it was pretty obvious the day of when this happened that Trump was guilty of inciting this big riot. We all watched him for weeks and all these other conservative influencers saying, like, they're stealing the election, folks. We've got to stop the steal. We're going down to the Capitol. We're going to storm the Capitol. Like, they were really quite open about this. Um, so it's it's never been this big mystery. Like, oh, did Trump was was Trump maybe involved in this? Like, yeah, I think he kind of was. 
we'll talk about this uh, as as with every single other legal consequence that's been coming through for Donald Trump. When some actual consequences emerge, or when he actually is, you know, meaningfully, uh, you know, held accountable for any of these numerous crimes, then I will maybe think that it's important or a big deal. As of yet, I'm still just because of the long history of him just escaping legal culpability for a number of crimes, both before and after he became president. I'm a little skeptical that any real consequences are going to emerge, but we'll see. I don't know. What do you think about it? Yeah, that's that's how I feel. It's funny. It's good. Sure, it's a step in the right direction, whatever. All the same tepid you know, cautious approach that we've had to all of the other legal challenges or indictments. Okay. But you see this, it's like, it's a rerun. It's a bad rerun. We see all of the same defenses on the right, even though it's different. And like you point out, this one's specifically tied to January 6th. This, you still see the same responses on the right. This is setting a dangerous precedent or you can't charge a former president for this or you can't do this. This has no legal basis. It's the same. It is the same exact responses as they've had for all for the other two indictments. And now on the left, it's the same thing again. It's we got him. He's going down. Finally, finally, we have charges in XYZ case. And... I'm with you. If later on down the line he faces any punishment, sure, I'll I'll celebrate that. Whatever, but I don't. I'm not going to expect it because, as we've seen for years, that is that is futile. You're you're only setting yourself up for disappointment. Maybe this is the one case where he he gets his comeuppance, but I would be surprised. It seems to be a lot of like I'm certainly not a fucking legal expert or anything, but it seems to be a, a lot of it is tied into whether Trump was like deliberately misleading people or whether he had a genuinely held belief, no matter how insane and stupid that it is, a genuinely held belief that this like fraud was taking place or that the election was stolen. That seems to be a major crux of the case, which I don't know how you prove that. Again, I'm not like a legal expert, so I'm not going to speculate too much on it, but it's it is quite funny that it all hinges on whether in his like diseased dying brain if he really genuinely did believe these wacky conspiracy theories or whether he was deliberately lying and misleading people um that's kind of an interesting question yeah uh that's the kind of legalese that they can spend yeah. days weeks months years deliberating over and that's usually where shit gets won lost so not going to stress about it now if it happens it happens if not cool but either way the conclusion of course is going to be this will somehow help Trump in the polls and DeSantis will continue to sink, which I find hilarious. Yeah, there's no amount of indictments that are going to lead to DeSantis gaining a, a just an iota of uh, importance in this election. Um, I mean, I think the funniest thing for me about it is about both with this, with January 6th and with the stupid like – secret documents cases that none of this needed to happen. Trump like had multiple opportunities to just give back these documents, which he could have done at any time and totally escaped any legal consequences for it. Or with January 6th, like if Trump had just accepted the election results with a small amount of dignity still intact, he would be in great shape now to run again and legitimately challenge Biden. I mean, even with all these indictments and with all Trump's baggage, he's still tied with Biden in the polls right now. Like 
it completely unnecessary. He completely like instigated this riot and suggested that like tried to do this kind of like pseudo insurrection, which I don't think is deniable. Like you look at the, like the things that they were saying behind the scenes, they're talking about invoking the insurrection act or whatever. And like using the military to like squash protests about this. Like, it was a genuine attempt, even if it was a ham fisted and stupid and failed. It was a genuinely a genuine attempt to like hold on to power and not uh, not concede the results of the election. Completely unnecessary, though. Um, the result is is absolutely the same. He could have uh, acknowledged the results with whatever caveats that he wanted to throw in about how it was unfair, and he would be still in the exact same position without all these mad- massive legal consequences hanging over his head. But it's just funny that that's Trump's nature is to like um, take things to that level. And both of these uh, uh, indictments that we're talking about were completely not necessary whatsoever in terms of like Trump's uh, strategy, electoral strategy or anything. It's just him being a huge dumbass, not wanting to concede, just basically on principle wanting to hold on to these documents so he can show them off to whatever like – jet ski dealer is hanging out at Mar-a-Lago that he wants to impress or Kid Rock or whoever. Um, he could have not done either of those things and he would be in a great position right now to run and possibly win in 2024. But he's, it, instead, he's, he's where he is at now. It's just hard not to laugh about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement. If they had not pushed for January 6th, if that didn't happen, if he lost, accepted it, day one, after the transfer of power, you know, January 21st, right after Biden takes office, immediately announce your campaign for 2024 and then just for four straight years run an opposition campaign, criticize everything Biden does. Honestly, I think in two after two years of that, it's so easy to galvanize an opposition when another party takes over. Like you you saw it with the Tea Party when Obama took over, you saw it with the resistance when Trump won. It's very easy to galvanize an opposition. It's easy to be an oppositional politician. If he did that, I mean, obviously people would throw money behind it. Right wing people would throw money behind it. He would be in much better shape. I would, I would guess he'd be, he'd be up by a lot in the polls right now. But the people who are on the fence and don't want to vote for him, I do think in large part is because of January 6th. You're going to have people who just generally were off put by the chaos of his administration. But I think January 6th was a, was a big part of people who, maybe did vote for him in the past or in the, or are in the Republican base who don't want to vote for him again. And this is like a, his own unforced error. I've got to say that I still do have some questions about how these yahoos were able to uh, storm the Capitol in the first place, despite having the full strength of the United States security state at their disposal. And maybe a few more questions about the role that like the FBI or the intelligence community played in like infiltrating these far right groups like the Proud Boys and encouraging people to go along with this. But, you know, these questions have not exactly been answered by the January 6th hearings or this indictment. And I guess we'll just never know uh, exactly about that. It's <laughs> important to point that out as well. I think that's, that's still my main uh, uh, unanswered aspect of what exactly was going on there. I, cause I, I've always agreed. Like, obviously you can, the easiest explanation of all that was that Trump galvanized this crowd. He was out there saying it every single day. And I don't deny that there's people that just went along with that. That to me, the role that the intelligence community played in these like, uh, s- groups of supporters and militias and extremist groups and the way that they were able to storm the Capitol, um, 
when we all know, as we've said many times, that a similar protest, a Black Lives Matter protest or a, you know, a left wing movement that attempted the same thing would certainly not have been getting within uh, anywhere near the Capitol building, let alone going inside and putting their feet up in Pelosi's office and that kind of stuff. That to me is still an interesting uh, aspect of that that has never really been satisfactorily answered, probably never will. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what was going on with that? Well, Let's let's get into our our conversation with Taylor Lorenz. Um, but to go back to what you said earlier, we had a good, very fun episode with just us uh, on Tuesday for subscribers, where we also talked about uh, a, a wager, if you will, that we're, we're we will are willing to undertake if we hit a certain sub goal, and. I think it's totally attainable. Let's say if we hit, if we get 200 more paid interns in the next month, Rob and I will, I think based on what I sent you, <laughs> that the survival, the survival food bucket, survival, we should food live off bucket. of that. Yeah. The survival food bucket. We will live off of that until we run out. <laughs> We, we didn't discuss this actually. I'm eat. interested. In yeah, this. I'm changing yeah, the terms. Okay, well, I see. I want to. I want us to do the something something big. We were talking about survival food buckets in relation to Y2K because that's part of a a storyline or plot line in Righteous Gemstones. I want to try one, and I think we should up the ante to actually just eating our way <laughs> through one of these atrocious buckets. If we hit a certain amount of sub goals, we each got our own horrendous slop bucket and that's all we'll eat until we run out. Yeah. If we get 200 more paid interns by the end or in the next 30 yeah. days, how's that sound? It sounds bad, first of all, but you know. Oh, it sounds terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but this is actually episode 199 of this program and we are coming up on episode 200 as well. So yeah, I would encourage people that if you've listened to this show over the last couple of years that we've been doing it, it's a long, quite a long time now that when you think about it, um, you know, it's been an absolutely incredible uh, journey. I've really enjoyed doing it. 200 episodes. It's also a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort. So if you want to support this program, or if you just want to torture Jordan and I by forcing, forcing us to eat literal slop buckets for your amusement, either one of those things, please, folks, subscribe to this program by visiting theinsurgentspod.com, right? Or theinsurgents.substack. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> not that. By going that was to, a test. By going, actually. By going to insurgentspod.com. Yes, exactly. Insurgentspod.com. Yeah. It's $5 per month. It's $55 annually. Every single uh, subscription really, really helps us keep the show going. Um, and we love doing it. We're happy to do it. But it, we really, really appreciate everyone's support, all the paid interns and everyone that's listened to and supported this show over the last couple of years as we get into episode 200. So you want to get to the conversation with uh, Taylor Lorenz now? Taylor Lorenz. Yep. This, was, this was fun. You, it was fun. Yeah, this was great. I enjoyed it a lot. Always appreciate Taylor appearing on the program, and she will be joining the show right after this. And joining us yet again, or I believe the third time now, 
is Taylor Lorenz, author of the upcoming book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. You're basically to be here. the third mic now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a cut of the Patreon. Well, let's not let's not jump the gun on that. I mean, we couldn't. Well, you're, that's an off you're mic compensated in in uh, awareness, <laughs> in experience, exposure. Yeah, yeah, exposure yeah, exactly. In that's yes. a, you can't put a price no. tag on that, and really, money's just futile. Yeah, what is it even? Talking in those terms. Yeah, uh, but we we appreciate we appreciate you joining joining us. Your book uh, is coming out soon. People can pre order it now. We will talk uh, much more about that in a bit. But uh, a story that we think represents just all of these intersections of your uh, expertise uh, and knowledge as a reporter, someone who has covered you know tech, the creator economy, business. All of these different things have coalesced into a few different labor stories. So we have the writers, uh, WGA is on strike, SAG is on strike, and we see across the entertainment sector, all of these uh, workers are banding together and fighting for better working conditions, better payments and more equitable and fair payments through royalties, better uh, contracts to compensate them more so they're not uh, trying to stretch their you know, limited work that they might get one year out over a long period of time. Now, when you and I were talking about coming back on, you mentioned uh, how you would like to you know, obviously talk about this, but also how it in- influences and affects the creator economy. This is a huge, huge industry now with no protections, really. So for, from your perspective, as you watch these strikes unfold and see all of this support flood behind the writers, the actors, all these people in Hollywood. How do you feel as somebody who has been writing and thinking about and interviewing people in an industry that's just adjacent to all these other fields? Yeah, definitely. I think as somebody that's covered this, um, the sort of like adjacent entertainment landscape, which is the influencer world, creator economy, whatever you want to call it, basically content creators on the internet. um, It's in one sense, it's heartening to see people strike and advocate for labor protections as they should. I think obviously we should all support, you know, the SAG strike and the WGA strike, but I think we need to also look at what the future of entertainment looks like. And, you know, the future of entertainment is very much digital and on the internet and um, largely mediated by these platforms like TikTok and YouTube and other, you know, apps that have absolutely no protections. I mean, it's very similar to the kind of like the gig economy in that way, where you're doing this app-based work for payment. Um, but there's no, like, there's no minimum guarantees. There's no ability to take time off. Like there's no, and it seems crazy because we're all basically content creators. And so I think that's sort of used generally to like dismiss people that want, you know, oh, it's like, is you know, is Twitter supposed to pay me for every tweet now or whatever? No, but you're probably just an average, well, ideally. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now Musk is paying his dumb friends. So, you know, perhaps uh, if you're Andrew Tate. But I think that we need to we need to recognize our power as users of these platforms and have more collective bargaining against these tech companies, whether it's even if it's just feature requests or um, prioritizing things like, you know, dealing with online harassment or other kind of negative aspects of these platforms, their addictive algorithms, like pushing them to build more sustainable, more healthy platforms for all of us and for content creators as well. I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you do this 
as a professional job. And for instance, you are inaugurated into YouTube's partner program or sort of premier partner program where it's like, you know, the sort of top tier YouTubers, right? At that point, like YouTube essentially is your employer and you, I think you should be guaranteed certain rights. And I also think just more broadly outside of, you know, pushing these platforms regulation, we also need to push, um, and changes, not just regulation, but just changes to their the way that they function. We also need to push the government to wake the fuck up and learn how to turn the computer on. Because, I mean, I've written about this um, recently, but you know, there are tons of children, and this is a this is a industry that thrives on child labor. The co- creator economy is literally built on child labor. It's on teen YouTubers and family vloggers, you know, putting their kids on the internet since the time they're born, like, and then monetizing that. And those kids not being entitled to a single dollar when they turn 18 or having zero control over their public image or not being able to wipe themselves off the internet or even, you know, yeah, just get a cut of the payments <laughs> like that they're like that, that they had mo- like they had their oh my god I can't even get a cut of the payments um, that they're entitled to because their entire life has been monetized. So I just there's it's such the wild west and I, I I think it took a really long time back in the day for the entertainment industry to get its act together and kind of put in place some rules and guidelines thanks to that you know collective pressure put on that industry and I think we need that but for social media. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean my the entirety of my income comes from a little bit from this podcast, but predominantly from Twitch. That's what's my main job. It's my main employer. And um, it's funny because people will say like, well, that's not a quote real job. And in many ways that's true. You know, it's like my, it's a ridiculous job. (laughs) I sit here at my desk and I talk about bullshit and sometimes try and have some kind of analysis about news or current events or whatever. But I'm often talking about soda or snacks or doing weird dances and trying to entertain people. It's really silly. Um, but it's also difficult. It's difficult to be part of this like nonstop content hamster wheel. Um, and the way that, you know, you're so incentivized and it's so gamified towards just doing it every single day. And the idea of taking time off for any reason is kind of like, it's not forbidden, but it's like, it's basically your, your, the message gets across that if you do that, you're going to have like a monetary, uh, disruption from that. I recently took a a week to go hang out with my family in New Jersey, which is very nice. Afterwards, I had a couple of days of like illness. Like I had to get back to doing the stream and I'm sick and I don't, I'm not able to do it. And there's just zero ability for anyone that's in that position to be able to take time away from it at all. And as much as it is a silly and ridiculous job, um, it would be nice generally for myself and anyone that's involved in this kind of like content, uh, uh, ecosystem to be able to have a little bit of protections to be able to take time off for sick days or for vacation or any of these things is just totally non-existent. And so is the so is the so or is the ability healthcare. to collectively bargain. Yes, or just get healthcare. Just be able to access basic healthcare through you know benefits some basic benefits yeah. programs. You know what I mean? I just think like if we're gonna say okay, this in America you know, healthcare is completely tied to employment. And this is the decision that we've made. And now we're going to have this entirely new class of workers, but they're somehow not entitled to any of that because they're technically these contract workers, right? Which all of these tech companies are constantly suing to ensure that everyone remains. I think that's a really bad system. And I would, I would totally disagree that it's a bullshit job. And I know you're just joking, (laughs) but like, you know, I, I feel, you know, so much of that gets said about media, especially women's media, but like, you know, there's this, um, I would say the content creator industry is essentially the new media industry. And there was this notion of like, oh, but you get to write fun articles for a living and you get to go out and 
go to fun events and write your fun articles. And isn't that fun for you to write about what you love? Yeah, but it's also work. Like I don't, I actually wouldn't be doing any of this if I wasn't getting paid for it. Like I would be <laughs> on a beach somewhere if I was rich. Yeah. And I'm sure you would too. Like I, you know, it's fun. And yes, we should like our jobs. Theoretically, that's the ideal, but like they're jobs. And I think we're entitled to certain, you know, like a bare minimum of, of payment idea, you know, ideally some sort of pay or um, protections and, you know, escalation, for instance, like if you get deactivated on Twitch tomorrow, like you should have recourse yeah. for that. Right. Like, and so many content creators don't. Well, it's true too. Cause it's like, I tell myself like, you know, my job isn't to, you know, have a Twitch stream or to talk about news and politics or whatever, any of these things. It's to, my job is that I'm a Twitch subscription salesman for the Twitch corporation. That's, that's how I earn my income. Um, and that's like, that's something that you have to just like manifest from nothing. And it is not easy to like continually every single day, try to be like moving a certain number of subs so you can earn a basic living from it. Um, and I think when you think about it more like that, yeah, I'm a gig worker for the Amazon corporation selling Twitch subscriptions. That's basically what it is. And like anyone working for Uber yes. or DoorDash or any of these tech companies as one of these contract workers, still it's, it's still work. It's still a job and you need to have the basic labor protections for that. A hundred percent. Gig workers deserve protections. Content creators deserve protections. Anyone doing a significant amount of work for these companies deserves protections. It's like, especially like you said, when you're earning, you know, just such insane amounts for these companies and you're sustaining a living, not just for yourself, but you're providing material value to them where you're in a partner program or you're in some, you know, you reach some level where they view you as well as like a, you know, a meaningful contribute, like a contributor to their platform. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that we, I think we all need to like recognize our collective power as users and, um, have a little bit more solidarity with each other and not just like laugh these jobs off. Not that that's what you're doing, yeah. but people often do that, you know, when people bring these things up and, um, and push the tech companies because the tech companies are never going to give an inch unless you force them to. Right. So. Yeah. They'll push back against it. As we've seen in some States, even California, there was a huge push by companies like DoorDash and Uber who were fighting against any sort of re regulation or even voter initiative to, grant benefits or reclassify gig economy workers, which, you know, it, 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 they kind of use, they kind of use, um, uh, they jump back and forth between what it is. Is it uh, a job that affords you flexibility or is it just something, a side hustle that you can make some extra cash with? Because they want it to be both in all things at all times so they can avoid any sort of regulation or government scrutiny. But in the case of Twitch, they're taking 50% of what, you generate i mean at that point you deserve way more than just a, like a purple check mark next to your name or whatever so maybe a cut of ad revenue i mean if they're taking half of what you make from you putting in hours and hours in some cases every single day you deserve way more than that that's not no matter what your content is and you see that across the board all of these companies want you to continue to push out content and the more you make, yeah, sure, you might see some incremental gains here and there, but it's ultimately just this never-ending chase to keep getting more and more views. And in some cases, that leads to people doing drastic things just to get attention, just to keep feeding that machine, which has gone horribly awry or tragic in some cases, and in many cases just leads to really bizarre, cringy content. But people reach this point where they're just desperate to keep going. They might have had initial success with a creative idea or two. 
And then by, you know, years into it, they're just melting down trying to keep feeding that machine. It's, it's sad. They shouldn't have to reach that point just to keep uh, making, making a living. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's deeply exploitative. And I think this industry is incredibly exploitative as well. It's kind of like the worst parts of the entertainment industry. And then it also, again, it targets children. It targets children. We're telling that these tech companies have sold a lie to these children that you too can be super rich and famous and look at all these amazing things you'll get. There are huge content creators with millions of followers that don't have basic healthcare. I mean, the healthcare thing drives me crazy because it's like we we have as a society have sort of decided that we're going to make this whole new class of workers. Everyone's going to be an independent contractor, whether you're working for one app or another, right? Like there's so much, there's record numbers of freelancers and the whole notion of like, be your own boss, be an entrepreneur, start your own small business, but don't try and get any benefits because you'd have to work for a big employer to get something like that. You know, don't expect anything. It's like, yeah. Okay. So we just have everyone working with nothing then, you know what I mean? Then they're just, yeah, and a, and a similar sort of criticism, I think, can be a, a, that the same that these people make about the sort of content creator economy. They'll make the same kind of argument about like striking actors or Hollywood writers as well, saying like, "What? Like you have it so good already? You're going like, what are you complaining about? Why are you asking for more income uh, when you're just sitting there writing TV shows all day or you're, uh, you know, playing make believe all day? You know, it's regardless of what you think the quality of the work is or how vital it is or how skilled you need to be, it still is work." And as we're seeing too, it's like when you're a Hollywood writer, you're not necessarily in the top tier. It's cool that the top tier actors and writers are supporting these strikes, but they're also engaging in this kind of basic solidarity with the many, many more people like in actors, for instance, working actors who are barely making enough to get by as it is. Um, And these people are the ones that are being left out, especially with these negotiations with the big studios that want to replace them with AI, that want to like copy someone's likeness and just like animate extras in the background rather than paying actual human beings to do it. Um, when you're when you're criticizing screenwriters or actors, you're not just going after the A-list listers that are millionaires from being successful in the entertainment business, but there's many, many other people that are really struggling to get by that are also really essential parts of this kind of like entertainment uh, industry. Absolutely. And I think creative labor in general is just so incredibly devalued in this country because we don't value creativity and you know the arts and individuality, right? It's just like, you go to work to get a job and you have to work and get, get, you know, learn STEM because that's the most employable thing. And it's just, it's, it's sad. I think we've stripped so much funding from the arts and we've devalued these careers so much that people can't understand them even as labor They're because they're seen as, oh, well, that's just something that you do for fun on the side. It's like, no, these are real professions. And by the way, they're valuable enough that these big companies are constantly hiring for that. You know what I mean? They're clearly these big companies rely on these professions enough that when they go on strike, it's, trouble for them so yeah we we talked a couple episodes ago with craig reynolds from straight from the path about how while there is this push for entertainment uh film and tv workers for better productions for them musicians have nothing and just really want to underscore how that is an industry that just gets totally fucked i mean streaming pays you next to nothing it's like a tiny fraction of a penny per stream you get basically nothing from the very few album sales you might even make anymore because no one buys CDs and even fewer people buy vinyl. You basically have to go out on the road, and that is grueling. That is so unglamorous, and people don't realize that. And now that. record they companies see, are taking big oh, cuts of that as well. 
that yeah. and also Live Nation and Ticketmaster because they want they got the ticket side and they have the venue side. So they control all of it and they overcharge you for different things at the venues, pay you a smaller and smaller guarantee. And then you basically make most of your money through merch. And now they they they, they have a merch cut. They have a pretty steep merch yeah. cut. So they want a sale of the merch that you made, you designed, you lug around the country and you sell. They want 30 or 40 percent of it just because you're in the building. Musicians get it so fucking raw, it's infuriating. But you're not allowed to complain because it's yeah. not a job. You're what? You're rocking around singing or yeah, playing guitar. It's just yeah. an it's just an interesting job. Yeah. It's an interesting job, right? It's still work and it's hard work. If you're on tour, yeah. it's grueling. Yeah. And people don't see that. And people don't see the workers on tour. It's not even just the musician, right? It's yeah. the the team yeah. that's on the road and the, you know, the that's setting things up and tearing things down and there's just so much labor that goes into these creative fields and it's totally devalued and it's totally dismissed. And I mean, I think labor across the country is being exploited. We obviously, we need to overthrow all these corporations and, you know, get some equality yeah. back. Taylor Lorenz says, burn it down. Oh my goodness. Controversial. I mean- <laughs> and yet another controversial statement from the firebrand Taylor Lorenz. <laughs> no but to, to tie it in though with like the ups strike that we talked about a couple of weeks ago with our friend uh alexander edward you know a job that maybe people would describe as more of like a real manual labor job even though i've seen many people trying to devalue the work that ups drivers do as well saying it's unskilled or whatever and they don't deserve to have the contract that they have um i was really happy after speaking to him, hearing about how their union was really like preparing for this strike and seeing them get the contract that they were asking for and a lot of the really regressive anti-worker policies being rolled back like this. He talked about this two-tier income system and all these things. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting case and something that everyone should pay attention to because he mentioned how the previous uh, union leadership at UPS had this very kind of like was giving concessions to the bosses, was kind of helping create this kind of two-tiered system. And the difference is once they, in their union, uh, elected new leadership that was extremely militant and that was not willing to make concessions to the bosses and that was willing to go on strike and really willing to like have these big labor actions, lo and behold, they got the contract that they were looking for and these aggressive anti-worker policies were rolled back. So I think that's a lesson for like all union organizing or worker organizing um, everywhere right now is that it's through this kind of like militancy is that that's the way that real meaningful concessions are going to be extracted from the ownership class, the capitalist class. Um, They don't give, you know, it doesn't get anything to try and play nice with these folks and give them concessions and offer up. Uh, things to them to show you how you know cooperative you are. Right? They don't care. You know they're not interested in cooperating. They're interested in taking everything from you and keeping it for themselves. Um, as we saw, as UPS proved, uh, it's this through this kind of like militant attitude. That's exactly how real concessions are going to be won against the the ownership class. Some would say there's a political party that could even yeah take lessons away. Some would say the most pro labor uh, administration I believe have been. Told repeatedly, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I I saw Mission Impossible Seven last night. Uh, awesome, just just autopilot, just turn your brain off and enjoy type movie. But as a friend pointed out to me, uh, Tom Cruise, and we'll talk about this at another point. Uh, Rob and I are both big Cruise heads now. Tom Tom Cruise in the past few movies that he's done, and not just Mission Impossible, has been making movies about making movies in his role as an actor 
uh, Top Gun, the whole plot was like, a computer can't do this, only I can. And like, as someone who prides himself on, you know, doing his own stunts and taking it very seriously, being a fucking maniac with that kind of stuff, that was like the undertone of Top the new Top Gun. This movie was like a giant fuck you to AI and algorithms. And that is something that he has been like really outspoken against in Hollywood and entertainment, this proliferation of algorithms influencing how content is made, what people watch, how it shapes people's decisions and all the data that guides even in some cases, the script development process, which I agree that's detrimental to people's broad, like the collective creativity in that industry. And all you're going to end up doing if you continue to allow, you know, data and AI to influence what shows you green light, what shows you promote, you're just going to get a bunch of formulaic bullshit. If the data sees that you'll have higher viewer retention, if you have a joke here, a certain type of plot point here, you're just going to have a formula that people then follow to keep viewer engagement up. And that is really uh, unfortunate and again, detrimental to the creative process. So I'm 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 all for it, and I think Mission Impossible Seven is is the most important film of our time, <laughs> besides Avatar: The Way of Water. I would like to see Tom Cruise no, actually no, no, joining no, the no, picket no. or like me, taking more of a forceful yeah. stand supporting these current strikes. I know he's not been like against them, but I would he, I I think he would be a a very good candidate Perfect to actually this, like step yeah. up right now and overtly support these uh, these strikes with either a donation or showing up on the picket line. It remains to be seen whether he's going to do that. That would be nice, though. He gave all his money to yeah. the Scientologists. He's I think. covering up disappearances <laughs> of high-level uh, Scientology <laughs> members. <laughs> it's all tiles. Finances are tied up in that. Yeah, he's a, he's a bit preoccupied. <laughs> Well, Taylor, let's get into your book, because this is, I think, a good segue to this book you have coming out very, very soon that people should pre-order right now. It's called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And, you know, having talked to you over the years throughout this process, writing a book seems easy and not at all stressful, Uh right? (laughs) Yeah. My first and last, honestly. Yeah, it was harder than I thought, but it's giving me a new appreciation for people that write books and also just how hard it is to write a good book. Um, I wrote my original draft of this book was 158,000 words. It ended up being around 87 after they cut it down, but... uh, (laughs) I was I was going on tangents you can't even dream of <laughs> when I was writing this. <laughs> so so tell us about it. This is uh what should we expect? I was skimming it today. Uh, I've got a couple questions about some things in it, but give us an overview for people who who haven't heard about it yet. Yeah, so it's a book about the rise of the online creator industry, creator economy, influencer world, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's kind of a, a social history of the rise of social media. So it sort of begins in the late 90s, early 2000s, the millennium, um, and kind of charts the course of social media's rise, um, specifically sort of through these, um, through the emergence of the content creator industry. So it starts with sort of like bloggers and um, those types of content creators and MySpace stars to the first YouTubers, the first content house in 2009, um, to, you know, Vine, there's a bunch of, there's two chapters about Vine and the live streaming boom. And then, um, prank era youtube the adpocalypse tiktok and just kind of like i think for a lot of like millennials it'll be like nostalgic because we live through all of this um but you probably forgot about a lot and there's a lot of kind of pivotal moments in internet history that 
you know, I think we all forget. And there's been so many, there's been so many books about tech written through these corporate narratives of like, you know, the Facebook book, you know, the 10th Facebook book or the YouTube book or the Instagram book, which I love. And I, I read all those books, but I wanted to do a a history of social media from more of the user side um, and kind of talk about the industry in a little bit more of a zoomed out way, instead of just promoting a corporate narrative of XYZ company, like just zoom out a little bit and like talk about how this whole, yeah, half a trillion dollar industry with absolutely zero protections emerge. Now you start the book with something I had never heard of, but apparently just shook up the social scene in New York and this was a blog that ranked socialites. Oh man, uh, you're giving away my. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I I thought it was I thought it was fascinating. Without giving away too much, could you you know give people like a teaser and how that sets up the rest of the book that again they should they should pre-order and read. Yes, pre-order it immediately. <laughs> um, yeah, so the 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 book sort of opens with. Um, with a discussion of this blog that that essentially was ranking New York City's socialites, and it was this it was this crazy uh, thing because it was suddenly this. I mean, this was. Well, I'm trying to think how to explain it. The mid the, the mid 2000s was for the first time party photos were being put online for public consumption. So you know, in the 90s, you could go to your charity event and take some photos, but those photos would never be made public. Really, maybe they'd appear in like the society pages of magazines. In the mid 2010s, you saw people like Patrick McMullen and, um, you know, obviously Getty Images started publishing online. Then you had people like um, Mark Hunter, Cobra Snake, publishing party photos. And so people started to witness parties that they weren't part of and sort of recognize these cult figures that started to emerge that were in all of these party photos. And those people were sort of essentially the first, you know, some of the first influencers along with bloggers and everything else that was happening at the time. Um, And so, yeah, my book opens with this blog that kind of upended all of New York society and um, had them kind of in a meltdown by ranking them. And everyone was sort of like fascinated by who could run this blog. And it ended up being somebody that is very much not. Yeah. And sort of showed the power of um, the internet to just like broaden people's worlds and kind of upend different, you know, little niche corners of like previous, you know, like sort of upend the power structure of worlds that were previously very closed off and elite. There's something else you talk about uh, in this book that I would like to, not necessarily about the passage and and what you write about, but just your thought on it generally. And this is the adpocalypse. And this is when YouTube like really reigned in how much it was giving people or what could be monetized on YouTube. And I've talked to a lot of creators over the years who weren't necessarily sympathetic because some of the people who were affected were like right-wing people who then bitched and moaned about how, mm-hmm. oh, all these people who complained about my content got me demonetized. Way to go, SJWs. And people who do make a living on uh, YouTube not pushing that stuff were affected because it was a pretty sweeping change. And yeah. I'm wondering generally what you think about these criticisms from people who, again, don't make right-wing content or inflammatory or bigoted content who also were affected, who are also upset about it. When I saw that as more of like kind of a lazy approach to something that needed more of a scalpel than a sledgehammer. Like if you really want to go in and fine tune and demonetize some of these bigoted things, you might need a little bit more person power doing that. But they took a sweeping action and that left a lot of people caught up in this fray. I mean, what do you, what do you make of these, these criticisms? 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the criticisms of YouTube, you mean, or the criticisms of the content creators? The content creators. like They, they were upset at people who were sounding the alarm about what was being monetized, and oh, they're upset at yeah. them. No, that was totally wrong. I mean, it's so funny because it's changed so much with TikTok, but back when I was reporting on that era of YouTube, there was this real hostility, and there was this sort of almost a camaraderie between content creators, which was don't ign- don't call out publicly or don't report on the bad stuff on YouTube because YouTube's going to overreact and they're going to demonetize and everyone's going to end up worse. I actually am pretty sympathetic to that because I do think that's what YouTube was doing. However, as a reporter, of course, I'm going to write about the bad stuff because that's literally my job. And ultimately, it's on YouTube, not me. It's not like it's like getting mad at the person who, you know, called the fire department or something instead of the person that started the fire. I don't know. You know, it's not probably a bad analogy. But um, and so, you know, I. I think I think 2017, which is when all of this really kicked off, was just this like pivotal year in internet history. And my book gets into this a lot, but it was that was the year of Trump's election. And I think the for a lot of people, although the internet had been getting actually significantly worse for like several years and more toxic and more crazy, and you know the prank era of YouTube had really escalated. Like this was you know Jake Paul's everyday bro. People were just doing out of control anything for views, basically. Um, and more and more extreme content, like the average like media people hadn't noticed. And once the media people started noticing in 2017 and writing these critical articles, YouTube freaked out because suddenly these tech companies that were actually kind of like had really enjoyed like mostly positive press, especially under the Obama years where like, you know, I remember attending this um, event actually right at the White House shortly before he left office um, called South by South Lawn, where it was basically like a meet and greet for big tech companies to like meet the White House staffers and people and like get them jobs. Like it was, you know, it was like a big networking event with tech. And I think it just, they had such a cozy relationship with tech. And then after the Trump, when the Trump era kicked off and suddenly there was this awareness of all this bad stuff on the internet, these tech companies kind of seized up and overreacted. Um, Now, Ironically, I don't think that they reacted strongly enough to some of these right-wing YouTubers that are promoting really horrific stuff still have massive platforms and they shouldn't on these platforms. They really shouldn't for what they're doing. They're causing material harm. But I'm I'm very sympathetic to the other content creators that, you know, are like, oh no, you know, don't don't write about this quite yet because I have this good business going. And I just know that if you, you know, Verizon pulls all their ads across the platform, that is gonna affect me and um, again, this goes back to like content creators sort of needing more of a dialogue with these platforms, needing to have more power against these platforms so that they're not completely at the whims. And I think actually that the adpocalypse is also a good kind of motivator for a lot of YouTubers to diversify their revenue stream. That's why you saw the rise of people like the Nelk Boys that never relied on monetization and solely relied on merch and stuff. Like, I mean, unfortunately, that's like, you know, and the Jake Pauls of the world and all those people that essentially were rightfully demonetized, they just pivoted really hard into merch, which is even harder. You know, it's direct monetization. So there's no ability to like cancel their income streams. You mentioned like, you know, how, how the internet has been getting more and more toxic for years now. And I wonder what you make. And I'm, I, I, I Mia culpa, I have not read the book, but I imagine it's in there. But I wonder what you make of the, of the, the idea of Gamergate being a kind of seismic shift um, in that respect. I think I've seen a lot of people scoff at the role Gamergate played in this kind of like online radicalization. Really? But I think it's, it's pretty apparent, especially now, that you can really draw this direct link between that moment when this kind of really toxic, organized online reactionary movement 
started to kind of like snowball and you can draw a direct link between that and the sort of emergence of the alt-right and the Trump movement um, and QAnon and all these different things. And the, the way that this kind of extremely online, extremely toxic culture has kind of engulfed the whole conservative movement. I don't think the conservative movement was guilty of, or, uh, you know, free of sin before that, or that these things didn't happen before that, but it does still strike me to be kind of a watershed moment when that emerged as like a genuine, genuine, like cultural force. Do you talk a little bit about, about that in the book? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned, you can't write a book about the internet without mentioning the, um, it's funny. I was talking to Will Sommer, uh, who I think you guys know, sort of just like has an encyclopedic knowledge of all of the worst, like right-wing sort of influencers, like the far right people. And, um, you know, Gamergate was this moment that really minted a lot of new influencers. I mean, without Gamergate, we wouldn't have Candace Owens, Milo Yiannopoulos, RIP. I don't know what he's, he's probably that dead. relevant right know. now, but uh, he's around, you know, like just there's, there's this whole sort of class Cernovich, like there's this whole class of influencers that emerged from Gamergate that have huge, enormous power on the internet to this day. And I think it was this galvanizing moment for people online, communities online that also, it, it provided this blueprint on how to weaponize the internet and previously that that didn't exist and i think that i mean you could write an entire book that's sort of like a version of my book that's just about that right-wing ecosystem they almost follow like they sort of they're these two parallel paths there's like the mainstream content creator path of the emma chamberlain's right and that's sort of the entertainment adjacent content creators and then you have this path of far right you know, crazy, like right-wing creators that are promoting really violent extremism, but they're both following the same, like they're both building their media companies in the same way and relying on the same monetization strategies and all of that. And I think you can't understand that right-wing ecosystem unless you understand the mainstream content creator ecosystem. And most people, especially in the media, don't even understand the mainstream content creator ecosystem. So I would argue that there's no way for them to really understand the dynamics of the right-wing content ecosystem because it's so influencer-driven. This is their bread and butter at this point. Like right-wing media is just, I mean, this is what the Daily Wire is so good at. It's sort of like leveraging influencers to generate these fake outrage campaigns, manipulate the mainstream media and, you know, radicalize people. Now there's a name that that, that pops up in this book uh, that we've discussed before. And, you know, every once in a while, I get a good laugh from this person uh, but you, you've pointed out that this this figure was extremely influential in shaping a a genre on on YouTube, and that is you know drama news, YouTube drama news. And of course, I'm talking of Hakeem, friend Star. of the show. Yeah. Uh, you talk about yeah, big big time supporter, <laughs> friend of ours. Uh, you know, it's like he is. Like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's kind of a, he's kind of a silly figure on the internet, but like he found something and really popularized it and is known as like the guy who helped build this genre on YouTube. So if people are unfamiliar with him somehow, uh, who is he and, and what is his impact on that platform and the way people, some people make, make content? Where to begin? Yes. There's a lot of lore, uh, with Keemstar, but he is, um, Daniel Keem. I mean, he's a, um, a content creator. He started out in, I think it was like 2014, 2015. He would basically quote tweet drama happening, going down on Twitter mostly. And he would hashtag, he would quote tweet hashtag drama alert. And it was basically this way to draw attention to kind of whatever was trending at the moment of like controversy within the YouTube world. Um, and he was really kind of like one of the first people to like pioneer this concept of like 
it's basically tabloid news coverage of the content creator ecosystem at the time. And I worked at People Magazine for a while in this era. Um, but the mainstream entertainment press was ignoring all these people on the internet. They didn't really know what to make of them. They weren't true celebrities. Nobody really knew they were. And so Keemstar was able to kind of like recognize this white space and create this YouTube news show. I mean, at one point he had, I think it was like 12 people, maybe 15 people. Like, I mean, he's hired actual journalists to work on that show um, and like a managing editor and all that stuff to create this show that's like a, a daily YouTube news drama show. And he really ushered in this era of like drama coverage. And there's just zillions and zillions and zillions of copycats now. The whole internet runs on drama. And um, yeah, I mean, he's been called the TMZ of YouTube. And I think that's a fair assessment. He's a very unique personality um, and sort of like, you know, people make fun of his tweets all the time. Um, but he really recognized that and was able to like hop on that early. Of course, there were there were these similar accounts emerging on Instagram at the same time, like the Shade Room, Diet Prada. They're sort of like accountability focused accounts um, in different industries that were sort of like, they're basically, you know, they're, they're focused on quote unquote accountability, but they're really just drama. They're covering drama. Um, and then with the, I don't know if you got to Dramageddon yet, Jordan in the book, um, if, if, if you guys out there remember Dramageddon, it was this big drama within the YouTube beauty community in 2019. It was 2018. Oh, I do remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Tell yeah. us, tell us. James Charles. Yeah. It was this, it's not even <laughs> worth getting into the drama, now we're doing but basically it, it was, it was like, now. yeah. <laughs> drama alert 2.0. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure Keemstar has some videos on all this breaking it down, but um, basically drama began to fuel heavy levels of engagement. I mean, this is also like the diss track era of YouTube. Remember whenever all the YouTubers were releasing diss tracks on each other for a while? Like, I mean, this just fueled views and it, I mean, it mainstreamed YouTube culture in, a, in an insane way. And then ultimately with really bad results because Logan Paul ended up filming a dead body and, you know, just a lot of stuff went wrong where it was sort of like, um, I think people started to recognize like that. they. Yeah. It's a little too far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did watch Logan. I did watch Logan Paul's engagement video, which was very sweet. And I think he's, he seems fine now. I don't have, he seems like he's on well, a good path. Yeah, he's he's pro wrestling now. now. And he's got a huge, he's got an innate talent for it. I got to say, I'm not a huge fan of him or his content, but his, his, ta his talent in that respect is totally undeniable. Some of his shit in WrestleMania this year, I was like, all right. You got to hand gonna, it to him. I'm not it's mad about this. <laughs> yeah. I take no pleasure he's, in reporting this. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he's always been the more talented, you know, he's a very talented, he's always had talent. I think he's an entertainer and he's always had talent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's fair. So, so it's, it's fascinating talking about the rise of these like right wing online influencers and the shift that's happened in Twitter over the last year or sorry, X. Oh, it's called X. Oh, that's so cool and edgy. Sorry. Fuck. But seeing the ways we're, that we're like the these kind of very, what I would see is very like fringe kind of extremist um, commentators or content creators there have now been like rewarded and have basically, he's deliberately and purposely alienated all these like liberal journalists that he has these, the, talking about Elon Musk here, that he has these petty grievances with and comedy writers or whatever. That used to be the annoying blue check brigade now, but now it's been replaced by this like swarm of libertarian, weird Musk sycophants and far right commentators. 
um, it's a really depressing change for a platform that I think had a lot of value, even if there was a lot of toxicity on it before. But seeing the way that that's become the like standard sort of form of protected speech on Twitter is this obsession with free speech. Like what that actually means is the freedom for these like uh, you know extremists and right wing commentators to be able to say whatever they want whenever they want. Um, and seeing them rise to the very top of the of the the ways that Twitter promotes their accounts and shows their content to people has been very depressing and to watch this happen. Yeah, I mean, I've written about this before, but I would argue it's not it's it's not about free speech for the con those people. It's about silencing the other people. It's about taking away speech from marginalized groups, from you know journalists, from other people. Like it's about it's about deranking them, devaluing them, sort of you know, by removing their check marks or whatever, like censoring their content, deleting their accounts arbitrarily. It's, it's really about like silencing and, and the sort of absence of speech. It's not even about, you know, it's, I, I just think it's, yeah, it's really depressing, but it's the classic projection that a lot of these far right people do. It's like, they are literally taking away your voice and your platform while claiming that they're being marginalized when they're getting boosted and paid, you know, $20,000 $20,000 for saying that um, rape is not a real crime or whatever. Yeah. Said. So it's bad. I was dying, by the way. Can we just say for one thing, speaking of Twitter influencers, the Krasenstein brothers are now like pro-Trump on Twitter or something. Did you see their- They're, they're anything that gets their yeah. engagement people And now, now. Musk yes. gave them a bunch of money. So they're is, like, we love is, Elon Musk now, coincidentally. Yes. That's influencer brain, baby. That's yeah. influencer brain. That's what I'm saying. This is the na- that is the natural consequence of this system of rewards that we've set up. Yeah, when it's when it is tied to views and replies, all that does is create an incentive structure to create the most, in some cases, the most inflammatory content you can, or just viral response bait. Which I, I mean, the guy, that guy who uh, just posts open-ended questions permanently, Eric Alper, on Twitter, who's like some Canadian radio guy, like he has been just posting, "What's a song that you love?" and and stuff like that for years. His his account, like, dude, how you better get in on this because this is like your gravy train, just waiting for you. You already do the exact type of content, and people engage with it. But that's the exact type of content that would boost your numbers. And the Krasensteins, I think, saw that, hey, all we have to do is create conversation starters over and over and over again, and we'll get money. So now they just take, oh, well, here's both sides of the argument. I'm kind of in the middle. So you get right-wing people saying, no, fuck you if you're not 100% on board, and the same for the left. It's just they're they're so cynical in everything they do, and you could see that through everything they've jumped through or to and from to make money. Yeah. I should have had been involved in this. I wish this had been in place between 2018 and 2020. I probably would have done quite well on there. I can't, I can't for those, (laughs) for that period of time, I was extremely fixated and obsessed with making people extremely angry with me all the time for some sick psychological reason that I can't even really describe. But I think I hit a limit where it's like, I can't have people being mad at me all the time anymore. I physically and mentally can't deal with it anymore. So I really missed my calling, I think as a, as a, influencer brain uh twitter guy unfortunately taylor it's on you now i feel like i make people mad online all day and i'm unable to monetize (laughs) it because elon hates me (laughs) well you got to get the blue taylor twitter blue or x blue or whatever the fuck it's called now you got to get that no listen to this listen to this my friend who also you know we still have check marks 
Like we still have check okay. marks. He's just hidden them. I don't know if you understand that back end. I don't know, Rob, this yeah. is a little technical for you, but this is my himbo. Um, I don't no, understand um, these. I don't understand <laughs> these kind of technical concepts, unfortunately. I don't know why I said it like, like, I don't know if you understand. Um, no, but basically like someone did this thing where like, you know, if you change your username really quickly, the blue check mark will reappear briefly before it defaults to being hidden again, if you're verified, because he didn't actually know how to like unverify everyone. So he just kind of like hid the verification of everyone's previously verified. And anyway, a colleague of mine tried to buy Twitter blue, bought Twitter blue, and then his check mark was still hidden. So, you know, and now I read actually today that they're going to give Twitter blue yeah. people the option to hide the check mark because it's become a mark. That shows shame, you've got a really great product when you're rolling like, that out. Yeah. Yeah. If you're too ashamed, if you're too ashamed well, you to show it. that you paid for this service, you, you can hide that fact. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I'm I'm all in on threads right now too. I love it over there. A little Zuckerberg Island. <laughs> I think it's fun. So Yeah. Uh as we as we wrap up, Taylor, um, I guess is there anything that you really want to stress about the book that people should know? Uh make an, another pitch for it. And then a final question. Of all of the influencers that we've seen over the years come and go, maybe they're still here, maybe they're not with us anymore. Maybe they've retired, hung up their mouse and keyboard or their phone. Who do you think would have the best chance of winning in 2024? Which influencer? Oh, in 2024. Damn, they're all too young. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Jeffree Star, he's he's old enough, but... A lot of baggage. Um, I mean, oh, he's not, yeah. But he's, <laughs> the oppo but and him would be great. always emerge. That would be... Imagine if Jeffree Star was president. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, then I would be convinced we were living in a simulation. That yeah. would put me over the edge. Um, yeah, 2024 is tough. I mean, I, I have that tweet of from Jake Paul from years ago when he says he wants to run for president, and I'm just waiting for that day. Although I think he won't ever. The Rock's do a big that. influencer, um, you know. And then Jimmy Don. Yeah, yeah, he's more of an actor though. I, I, I don't know. Up. I mean, Jimmy Donaldson has expressed interest in running for public office, and I think he could win. You definitely um, see that. Yeah. Uh, and but like yeah, twenty twenty four. A unity ticket. <gasps> Trisha Paytas, Ethan. Tr- Trisha and oh. Ethan, twenty twenty four. Unity, unifying wow. the country. Wow, against Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah, I mean, I think I, I think Donald Trump was truly our first influencer president. If we're you know the way that he sort of wielded the internet, and I mean, I know he's a traditional Hollywood star, but. I, I would count him as like yeah. president. Um, so maybe he'll be back. But um, in terms of the book, I, I just want to say again, it's available for pre-order now. Pre-orders are basically like the only thing that count for books, sales stuff. So if you're interested, pre-order it now. I think you'll find it interesting. It's, I think, a good look at the tech industry and kind of, um, it's a fun read. It's like, a you know, it's, a, it's very nostalgia driven and it's very, I think a lot of people lived through, especially the part about the 2000s and the rise of like mommy blog. I mean, women... I care a lot about sort of like women getting their due on the internet. And there's a lot of um, discussion of that in the book that I think people will be interested in because Silicon Valley has really tried to rewrite a lot of people out of history. I'll say that. And um, I hope that my book can kind of reset the narrative on all of this stuff. It's not a bunch of Silicon Valley billionaires that came up with some of the most impactful features and products. It's 
it's was these power users and a lot of the times i'm very interested to read it too i mean i lived through that as well i was in a moderately popular band in the mid 2000s so you better believe i was all over myspace and that was a big part of my life was being on myspace all the time so i remember it very well the forgotten heroes of that era should be remembered i agree taylor the the women influencers and the and the cool uh former band guy dads as well need to be in there as well. <laughs> there's a lot of crazy men influencers. Yeah, there's a lot of men in my book too. I, I write a lot about Vine. So there's a lot about 1600 Vine and Vine culture. Yeah. I uh, I did I did do a control F on the PDF and I searched Jordan and Rob mm, and maybe in no the sequels. So l- listeners, please just go into that just knowing what to yeah. expect. We're sorry to let you down, but... It's probably an editorial oversight. Speaking of Vine, you know, the video that really gave me a throwback to the the Vine era was that incredible clip of the cop going down the slide that dropped this weekend. Oh, yeah. It was just fantastic. I love that. And that really reminded me of a Vine. My my entire Instagram feed is remixes of that. I like him going up the slide and like other things happening. Fantastic. Yeah. It was wonderful. Although I will say like, his gun yeah. came out of his pocket. Like that could have shot someone. I'm like you should not go down a slide with a gun in your pocket. Are you crazy? I just physic. Yeah. I just don't understand the physics of what was going on there. Genuinely, <laughs> like the speed, the, the angle through which he get, emerges from the slide. Like I've watched it dozens of times, and every time I'm surprised by him shooting out of there. You know, it's just fantastic. I absolutely. I want a full length documentary yeah. on this moment. I want to really get into understand this. Uh, what was going on there? Fucking great. Um, somebody, somebody posted yesterday that it sounds like the sound it makes is <laughs> clanging through the slide. It sounds like an yeah. ice an ice cube coming out of the tray. And I have not been able to stop thinking about that since I read oh, that. Oh God. It's so true. That's oh, so true. See, there's on. still there's a yeah. dark period on the internet with the the Musk era and these deep reactionary movements <laughs> and all these dangerous things that are going on. But there's still moments where we can all come together and share a laugh. Of people of all political persuasions thought that was funny, even though their cops were like, "Okay, that's that's funny." I got to admit that that's funny. You know, it can still it's bring great. us together. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cop humor <laughs> will be the uniting force. Yeah. Um, well, thank you guys so much for having me. This thank you, Taylor. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people uh, pre-order the book? Pre-order, the link is in every bio that I have. Um, just Google Extremely Online, Taylor Lorenz. It'll come up. You can get it. Bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, literally everywhere. Um, pre-order it today. Call your local library and have them request it. Um, and yeah, and you can follow me everywhere. I'm at Taylor Lorenz. I'm not using Twitter as much anymore, um, but I'm everywhere else. Lorenz. I have a YouTube channel now too. So nice. like and subscribe. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful send off. Taylor, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>